Hey there, Carl here. I wanted to take a minute to tell you about a new podcast and artist community called the Conspirator Collective. Join us as we find, interview, and support young people as artists, connecting their faith to all the deep questions and conspiracies of goodness in the world. Check out episodes and an archive of work from young artists at conspirator.co. The Conspirator Collective is an arts project of Young People's Ministries of the United Methodist Church. Hey, this is Dan Wonderlich from Defining Grace, and welcome to Art of the Sermon, a show for preachers, teachers, and communicators. My guest today is Alicia Gordon. She's a writer, a published author, and the executive for spiritual growth at United Methodist Women. Alicia joins us today to talk about the relationship between single mothers and the church. And before we jump into the interview, I wanted to let you know that as we're talking about families and parents and kids, and as we head through August and into September, it is back to school season, and I have some back to school resources for you. So check out the blog at defininggrace.com for some great practical things you can use in your ministry today. All right, let's jump into my interview with Alicia Gordon. Well, my guest today is Alicia Gordon. She is a writer, a published author, and the executive for spiritual growth at United Methodist Women, which I just learned is located in Manhattan, downtown New York. Uh, Alicia, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show today. You are so welcome. Well, we like to begin by asking our guests to share a little bit about themselves as well as their ministry and its context. Yeah, well, my name is Alicia, and I'm originally from Decatur, Georgia, which is a suburb of Atlanta. Um, I'm currently living in New York City on the Upper West Side, and I am, as Dan already said, the executive for spiritual growth at United Methodist Women. A lot of my work at United Methodist Women is deeply rooted in the spiritual development of our members. And I'm a writer, a published journalist and author. I'm a former high school English teacher, believe it or not, a preacher and a worship leader. And I'm the mom of a 12-year-old daughter. Oh, that's so cute. That's so cute. And what's her name? Her name is Ashley. Awesome. And uh, it's interesting that you work for United Methodist Women because I know at least um, stereotypically United Methodist Women are thought of as a circle of older women sitting in a room talking about things that aren't that relevant. But I know that over the last, especially decade, but I'm sure longer than that, United Methodist Women have been working to increase their reach or maybe just to let people know that they're more than than just that. So why don't you talk about what it's like to be uh, someone uh, of your age working for United Methodist Women? Yeah, so I'm 34, and I'll be 35 next month. And so, yeah, there, there's always this kind of stereotype that United Methodist women are old, older women who are, like, in knitting circles and all this kind of stuff, which is absolutely um, not true. So it's been really cool. A lot of my colleagues are in their 30s and 40s, um, and many of them are women of color. And so we are bringing this kind of new and revitalized um, understanding of how we do ministry and how we do mission in the world. Um, and so United Methodist Women has really uh, taken the charge of shifting these ideals and these kind of public perceptions of the organization and what we do. Um, and we're doing a lot of great work behind the scenes to kind of shift that uh, shift the way that we are um, are marketing ourselves and promoting our work and being very intentional about um, making connections in the kind of non-traditional way. And so the way that we think about membership in United Methodist Women is often um, very closely attached to uh, church affiliations. And we're finding that there are so many women who want to be connected to the work of United Methodist Women who aren't necessarily connected to a church. So and I think that taking that um, approach will really be... Uh, begin to help us shift the way that we are perceived in the public 
and um, really allowing a hundred. I mean, we've been around for 150 years, yeah. right? Yeah. One of the uh, longest running um, church agencies for United Methodist Church, and so proof is in the pudding. It's just about shifting. Um, like I think a lot of church agencies are doing now, shifting the way that the world sees us, and um, making sure that we're promoting ourselves as authority about the work concerning women, children, and youth around the world. Man, that is so great to hear. And I know a large part of our listener base are United Methodists. So if you're a United Methodist pastor uh, or staff person or lay person out there and uh, you get all of the stereotypical images in your mind when you hear United Methodist women, uh, it's so great to hear from Alicia that they are doing so much good work now. And so maybe if you uh, normally roll your eyes about it, head to their website, reach out to Alicia, and we'll, we'll get her contact information at the end of the episode. And you can really start to maybe change the perception in your own church and own community because they do a lot of really, really great work. Absolutely. Well, Alicia, we also like to start by asking our guests a really general question about preaching and communication, and that's, uh, do you have a philosophy or a guiding principle, maybe even a mission statement for you when you think about preaching or communicating through your current role? Yeah, um, the guiding principle in my preaching and communication is really about uh, connecting our faith to our experiences. Um, you know, it's very Wesleyan to say that, but yeah. I think one of the um, driving forces as a preacher and a communicator is something that I learned as a, a high school English teacher. I taught high school English for like four years in a suburb of Atlanta, and um, the key to learning in my classroom was about making very complex concepts simplify in the learning and the way that I knew that my students knew something is that they were able to teach something else, hmm. uh, teach someone else, right? Um, and so I kind of I've taken that understanding of teaching ninth graders right into this understanding of how we understand scripture, um, how we understand often complex faith ideas, and simplifying it in a way um, that is con- directly connected to people's experiences, right? Hmm. So when people can make a connection um, to their own lived experiences or the experiences of someone else that they know. Those concepts and preaching and communication really simplify themselves where people can kind of put it in their back pocket and take it, take it with them and teach it to someone else. And so that's kind of just a guiding principle um, when I'm writing sermons or when I have to communicate in some way in my work. I'm thinking about how can I make these ideas connect to the experiences of the people that's in the congregation or in the boardroom or whatever the case may be. And why don't you share with our listeners a little bit about your experience preaching? I know that you have spent some time as a staff preacher at uh, Olu Brown's Church, who was a guest on our podcast just a couple mm-hmm. episodes ago. Uh, why don't you let our listeners know about your uh, history and career with your theological training and preaching? So, um, <laughs> I entered seminary at Candler School of Theology in 2012, and I was adamant that I would not be a preacher, right? <laughs> yeah. I didn't like the word preacher. It, that the word preacher came with a lot of context that I didn't like. It came with a lot of responsibility that I really didn't want to deal with. You know, if you see a picture of me, I have like blonde hair. Sometimes I have purple hair. I have tattoos, like all this stuff. And so I really didn't like it. And so by the time I got to my third year in seminary, or actually my second year in seminary, I was taking a preaching class with Dr. Teresa Fry Brown. And, you know, you have to do these like quick 60 second sermonettes in class. And, yeah. She's like, you are called to preach. And I'm like, no, I'm not. Thank you very much. (laughs) Have a nice day. And um, she's like, no, you're called to preach. And there at Candler every year, 
it is an honor to be asked to preach in chapel. And so I was one of the students that year in 2014 that was asked to preach. And that was the first time I ever preached in a public space, right? Wow. And I was like, whoa. I <laughs> Maybe I am called to preach, right? And so during that time, I was uh, interning at Olu's Church, at Impact Church in Atlanta. And I remember talking to Olu, like, as an intern, like, yeah, you know, I'm realizing I'm called to preach, and I'm just wondering if I'll ever have an opportunity to preach on the main stage. And he's like, no, but you can go back there with the youth <laughs> and do <laughs> yeah. the lesson and, you know, work with them and um, and just being intentional about um, making sure that I was ready for the, the kind of weight that comes with preaching. Mm. And so um, after my internship was over, uh, Olu calls me one day and was just like, hey, I want you to preach one sermon <laughs> on one Sunday at one service, um, and let's see how this goes. And the rest is history. And I, I'm always so grateful for um, Dr. Fry Brown for seeing that gift in me, um, but for Olu for um, opening up that opportunity to entrusting me, right, um, to ha- carry the weight and carry the mantle of preaching at a church like Impact. And so that was like in 2015, and I've been preaching ever since, and um, I've been preaching at Impact in different churches around Atlanta, and now here in, Atlanta, in New York, I've preached at a couple of UMC churches here. I was preaching at Church of the Village at the end of the month, and so it's just amazing how God does not waste anything. If I had, to, if you had told me in 2007 when I was teaching um, middle, uh, you know, ninth graders, yeah. you know, I would have said, no, I would never preach, but I find that some of those skills that I picked up then that I use in my preaching and the development of my sermons, and so it's good. I love preaching. I actually love the research of it and, you know, pulling out all my theology books and pulling out, you know, magazines and, like, making sure that I'm up on what's happening in the world and developing sermons, so that's kind of how that went. That's so great. There's so many parallels uh, between what you shared and then what Olu shared. And, and I won't extrapolate. Our listeners can go back uh, and, and listen to the old episode. But it sounds like you're a really good fit uh, in that community. So that's really awesome. Yeah. Uh, one of the areas that you are, are particularly passionate about is the church's ministry or sometimes lack thereof with single mothers. And so can you start by sharing your experience of being a single mother in relationship with the church? Yeah, so um, as I stated before, I have a 12-year-old daughter. She was born in 2004, and I was a member of a church in Atlanta that, that's not affiliated with UMC at all. It's kind of a non-denominational church, and I remember being in that church, and there were several women. By the time I came to that church, I had already had my daughter. Um, but there were a couple of friends that I had who gotten pregnant who were active in the church ministry, and I'll never forget watching people in ministry, even the church pastor, telling this girl that she couldn't sing in the choir anymore mm. because she had gotten pregnant. And the, the the young man who got her pregnant was in production. You know, he did the video and sound and all that kind of stuff. And every Sunday he showed up and did what his assignment was, and he wasn't asked if he sat down, but she was. And so there was this shame that was placed on her. I can go through a number of stories where women that I personally know were asked to be to sit down in ministry or was asked to come in front of the church and apologize to the church for their sin of getting pregnant, right? And so hmm. I have been fortunate enough to not have had those shameful experiences in a church context, but there have been um, times where people in church 
who hear my preaching or know, you know, have, have seen my resume or see my bio online and all the things that I've done. And then there's always this question of, aren't you a single mom? And that question always shocks me as if <laughs> my status as a single mom, you know, does not, uh, does not validate or, or stain mm. my ability and my call to ministry. Yeah. And so these kind of dynamics within the church are, are really unfortunate because it is a kind of this moral underlying question about women and women's bodies and women's decision-making that are only placed on women, right? A lot of the conversations we have about, about holiness and holiness, our bodies are directed towards women and not necessarily always to men. And so, you know, that, that's kind of been the experience um, in churches and over the, over the last few years, I've been really intentional about having public conversation about where we get this kind of moral and theological ethos around single moms in particular and the shame that's placed on them and our misreading of scripture um, that makes it difficult for churches to really minister to a large demographic. I mean, huge. You think about in, in many churches, you could easily say that over 60% of the population or the congregation are women. And depending on where you live, a lot of those women may be single moms. And having to rethink what it means to be a single mom is really important, Dan, because I think in our mind we think that, oh, this is a woman who made a poor choice and she had a baby out of wedlock. But that erases the story of women who were once married and now divorced who are technically single moms, women who lost their partner in you know, uh, by violence or in a war or died of cancer who are now single moms or women who have the autonomy and the uh, right to adopt because they want to take on that responsibility of being a mom, but they're not married. And so expanding our understanding of how single motherhood happens is critical to the way that we engage as a church um, and the way that we read the scripture and the way that we treat this, um, this important segment of our church and being able to resource um, single moms in a way that's liberating and supportive. Yeah, and and I've heard you talk before about even um, drawing connections between uh, single moms and the use of the concept and and the term the fatherless in Scripture. Can you can you jump into that a little bit? Yeah. So generally speaking, we always talk about you know God is the God of the fatherless, and we go through the New Testament and um, Timothy and Titus and all these conversations about how we are charged as a church to care for the widow and the fatherless. But when it's time to talk about single mothers in the context of 21st century world, we don't want to have that conversation because, because again, the implication is that the woman made a poor decision mm. and that um, because she made this poor decision, she is not deserving of the same regard or support as the widow and the fatherless. But come on, if we talk about in Scripture that we are called to care for the fatherless, what is a fatherless child? <laughs> the fatherless child is the child of a single mom. And I think we lit words around that and we split hairs around that because we really have difficulty wrestling with our own understanding about single motherhood and the implications, the social implications of that. But that's what scripture calls us to do. And scripture is calling us, in my opinion, to begin to rethink the way that we interpret scripture that calls for us to care for the fatherless. Because the care for the fatherless child is also to care for that child's mother mm. and, and supporting her in really important ways. And I always go back to um, the, the text of Second Kings 4, where you have this widow woman, right, 
whose son is going to be sold into slavery to pay off his father's his father's debt. And what does she do? She calls on, you know, the, the prophet comes to her and says, go get a jar and fill it up with oil and go to all of your friends in the community, all the people in the community and go get the jars, right? And the prophet speaks over the jars and the jars are filled up with oil and so much so that she not only has enough to pay the debt, but she has enough that we assume to, to live on for the rest of her days during a time of famine. And so I always go back to that scripture when talking to churches and talking to people of faith about how we understand the church's role and the community's role in the lives of single motherhood about self-sufficiency and being a resource of, of saying that God has a deep heart for women who are caring for children on their own. You see it in the story of Hagar. You see it in the story of Mary, the mother of Jesus. You see it in the story of the woman in the second Kings four. And, you know, I come from the belief that if God says it, says it more than once, <laughs> that <laughs> yeah. God really means it, right? Yeah. Well, I, I am I am absolutely with you in that we have a very narrow image of single motherhood, at least when we hear the term. And, and when you name all these other things, the light bulb goes on and we go, of course, all these things exist. Now, let me ask you, for, and we have, a, we have a wide spectrum of listeners to this podcast. For uh, mm-hmm. those out there who may be from the conservative side of the spectrum, um, who yeah. uh, view having sex outside of marriage as a sin, mm-hmm. how, do you, mm-hmm. how do you enter into dialogue with them or how do you help them come to a place? I'm just, I guess I'm just asking, how do you dialogue with someone who uh, cannot see the child as anything other than the product of what they consider to be sin? Um, and I'm going to preface my answer by saying that I grew up Southern Baptist where women didn't preach or wear lipstick or pants. Like, <laughs> yeah. so my, my Southern religious Christian roots are, are from that school of thought, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I've, you know, shifted and changed my theology about it since then. But so I want to make sure that I preface my answer by saying I understand that Kirk conservative understanding I was a girl that wore the promise ring. I was, you know, I did, I did all those things, right? Yeah. When, when I engage in conversations with people, um, whose theology is that uh, sex outside of marriage is a sin, that's really not necessarily up for debate for me, mm-hmm. right? You may agree, you may disagree. That's not for, uh, for, for debate. What I do want to always engage in conversation about is that the child is now here, right? Yeah. And this child is a gift from God. And we have to decide, does our theology about sex and sexuality trump our understanding of what God has called us to when it comes to nurturing the lives of children and the families in which they live? Hmm. That's, that's really the, the, the question for me, because we can debate all day about whether or not sex outside of marriage is a sin and whether or not Scripture supports that. But I, I really think, and I, and, I, and I always say this to people about, Sex outside of marriage that produces a child is probably one of the few things where you are always reminded of your quote-unquote sin, yeah. right? I used to say that a long time ago is that, you know, my sin holds my hand at night and I feed it goldfish. You know, I mean, I mean, because when people talk about it like that, that the child is born out of sin or is a representation of your sin, I said that's basically what you're saying is that this child that I grow and that I nurture, that I feed goldfish and I sit down for a nap every day is the manifestation of my sin. Mm. And I think there's something theologically 
difficult about that to say that this child um, that had absolutely nothing to do with my decision making is now being looked upon as um, the product of sin when God is the only one, only being that has the ability to create human life. And so I think it's important that, you know, when we have a conversation with conservative or moderate or liberal um, theologies is that we don't necessarily debate whether or not sex outside of marriage is a sin. But we do need to think about the ways in which we understand God and understand God's call for us to care for children and their families and undergird that. Um, as a part of the liberating ways that we can begin to build community and support people, because the child is here now. There's nothing we can. Yeah. There's nothing we can do about that, yeah, right? Absolutely. Um, so I, I, that that's my approach to that in the most shortest response I can give. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I very much appreciate it. And thank you. Thank you for being open about all that. Uh, what do you think are some of the biggest failings or missed opportunities within the church when it comes to ministry to single mothers? Let's say that we have all gotten on the same page, that we are viewing this mm-hmm. child as this amazing creation uh, of, of worth and dignity. We see them as, as mm-hmm. worthy, uh, and we see the mothers as worthy of relationship. What do you think are some of the biggest failings mm-hmm. uh, or missed opportunities uh, for churches that are even on the same page when it comes to single mothers? So I always go back to a book called Unfinished Business by Carrie Day. Um, and she, the book is written from the context of the black church um, because that's the her context. But I think what she talks about is really important for the church in, in general. And one of the critiques that she has is that the church misses the opportunity to tap into resources that equip single mothers into self-sufficiency, and probably most importantly, an opportunity to educate parishioners, right? Mm. So we're all on the same page about the things you just stated. Um, The two things that we, I think we missed is that the church has an opportunity to tap into resources, to bring resources outside in the world and help connect those resources to people in the church. I think that's one thing, but probably the most thing that I figure is the biggest failing is the opportunity for religious education to not only equip parishioners and congregants about our newfound understanding about single, single moms, um, but also putting them in a position where they can take that knowledge out into the world and help connect the single moms or single dads that they know in the world to the resources that we are often overlooked. Part of that is, in general, that um, we all have a blind spot about the resources that are made available and a lot of those resources made available are often tied to this idea of quote unquote welfare. And I, I, I don't like that word because I, <laughs> yeah. I think welfare is about the welfare and the well-being is a better word of, of, of people in general. So those are the two, I think, missed opportunities, a connection for resources, um, you know, especially depending on where your church is, what part of town is in, you know, you can have a congregation of women where half of them are single moms and half of them are, you know, are still struggling in these particular ways that if they just had that connection of community, like I said in Second Kings 4, you know, that woman had a connection to community and it was the community offering up their jars so that she and her son could live and have this well-being and this, this full experience. Knowing that, that the answer to this question will rely on the context of what what church uh, or community folks are in. But are there are there one or two practical ideas or resources that you think most cities have or most things that churches just full of everyday people could offer to single moms or help them connect with? 
So in my experience in, in lots of different church spaces, one, especially as a single woman, right, and a single woman who desires to be married, a lot of the disconnect for single moms, single women in general, and um, resources at the church is that there's no one to care for their children when there's time for them to engage in adult affairs, right? Mm-hmm. There have been plenty of times in churches um, years ago they would have a thriving singles ministry. And uh, we, again, if you don't, uh, have the experiences of a single parent, you have a blind spot to what it takes for a single parent to engage in, you know, just social interaction with other adults, making sure that the child has child care or that the event and the church is offering child care. And so a piece of practical advice would be is that, one, to just take the blinders off about what it means to engage in church ministry as a single person. Because I think single ministries are, are really important. Marriage ministries are really important. But we often have a blind spot because the norm is not um, to consider the, the lives and experiences of single parents. Yeah. Um, and the other thing would be understanding, probably it's tied to that, the, the need of the understanding of intersectionality. I know that's something that we're going to get to a little later about the intersections between um, our lived experiences, race, gender, ethnicity, social class, all those types of different things have an impact. And so that's also another point for religious education, like how do we begin to understand these social things around um, intersectionality and how it relates to the way that we do church and that we do ministry and that we offer resources to people so they can fully engage in the life of the church. Yeah, and let's let's go ahead and jump into that. That's um, a concept that I wanted to ask you about because it's a big part of the work that you do. Mm-hmm. For those in our audience who uh, maybe have never even heard the word or have heard it but don't know what it is, can you can you define intersectionality and how it's uh, a factors into ministry with uh, single mothers? Yeah, so intersectionality is a term that was coined by Kimberly Crenshaw in like 1989, and so during this time there was a lot of conversation um, with feminism. And according to Crenshaw, she said that the definition of feminism, which is like this idea that women should be equal in these particular ways, did not consider the particularities of black women. Hmm. And so she was trying to uh, introduce this thing, almost like, I mean, literally like an intersection, uh, where there's this particular road, and then there's this road that crosses over it that creates this place of uniqueness, right? And so intersectionality is... So by 1990, Patricia Hill Collins, she kind of reintroduced this idea of intersectionality to include race, gender, class, and ethnicity. And so these intersections, intersectionality basically is the consideration of all the parts that make up a human being. So your race, your gender, your class, your ethnicity. So here's the thing. So if you grew up in a middle-class middle America, um, you went to the same type of high school and same type of college, you know, there's this homogenous idea that this group of people may be the same. But the intersections come based on the gender. You know, we see that there's these nuances, and we hear this in the news about how women make 70 cents on the dollar of a man. They can have the exact same, yeah. <laughs> exact same uh, experience, exact same education. But the intersection there is that because she's a female, that um, there's this level of oppression there. And you see the same thing where you talk about class. Or, or, or race or ethnicity. And so intersectionality is really getting us to think about the multi-layers of a person's identity and how those multi-layers of a person's identity impact the way that they see the world and the way that the world sees them. This is really 
really important, and I hope it's something that churches begin to dig into because it helps us better understand the way that we do church day to day, and it also helps us understand the way that we respond to the needs of marginalized people. It reminds me of the story uh, in John 4, the Samaritan woman, right, where <laughs> the Samaritan, she was a woman, so that was one thing, one strike. She was a Samaritan, which, you know, there was this ethnicity thing with between the Samaritans and the Jews. Um, and she was marginalized because of her past. Like, Scripture tells us that she came to the well after the time that most people come to the well. Well, why did she do that? Because there was this level of shame, this level of um, ostracized. She was being ostracized. And so she came to the well during the time that she, think, she didn't think anybody would be there. And she has this conversation with Jesus, and Jesus is like, hey— can you give me some water out of the well? And what's her response? She says, why do you, a Jewish man, a, Jew, a Jewish man, a man, a Jew, a man, ask for something to drink from me, a Samaritan woman? And so she's making this, this, this uh, distinction about the intersections in her life, is that based on my gender, based on my ethnicity, and based on my checkered past, you and I should not be even having a conversation. Um, but what does Jesus say to her? He says, listen... I got some better water for you, right? <laughs> I got yeah. a water from a well that would never run dry. And Jesus really digs into it. And, and, and um, so understanding intersectionality in this way helps us have a new understanding of Scripture and how we take this understanding of Scripture and how Jesus really uh, does a great job in this particular text of, um, and so does the woman, to be, to be honest, of naming those intersections and naming those things that oppress her and Jesus really responding in the way that we all should respond when we're talking about doing ministry in, in context where everyone's story is not the same or everyone is not the same race or ethnicity. And so it's a, it's a great tool for churches and ministries to become familiar with to really as a, just a lens to reading Scripture and a lens to thinking about how we engage with people in and outside of our congregation. And we'll ask about more general resources later, but do you have any resources or authors or public figures that you would recommend folks uh, follow or check out if they're interested in maybe becoming more aware of some of the perspectives within theology that may not be found in our typical seminary classes? Yeah, so, I mean, anything by Carrie Day, um, K-E-R-I Day, like time of day, uh, Tracy Blackman has great work, um, and all these people are on, like, Twitter and Facebook. Um, I really, really like the book Injustice and the Care of Souls um, by Cheryl Kujawa Holbrook. Um, it's a really great text about uh, rereading scripture as it relates to all kinds of different, like, intersections. So transgender and people who are differently abled from a Jewish perspective and Asian perspective. Like it, it just really is in depth of beginning us to rethink the way that we look at intersectionality and um, our work. And I can send you some other stuff if you want to put it on the, um, the text of the podcast. That's great. Cause I know a lot of the, the avenues that I turn to for sermon prep and probably a lot of our, our, audience turns to for sermon prep, kind of the the traditional, you know, printed commentaries mm-hmm. and, and even some of the web resources. They're really great about the exegesis and the history uh, and the traditional mm-hmm. uh, sort of American white 
church perspective. Um, mm-hmm. But I, mm-hmm. I, I, I don't think I have a commentary on my shelf that really digs into things like that. And so uh, thank you for sharing yeah. those resources. Well, in addition to this kind of work, you are also a huge pop culture fan. And so I did not want to let the episode go without asking you what you are watching, reading, or listening to these days. And uh, has there been anything so far this year that you would recommend our fellow theologians and preachers check out as something to potentially uh, mine for illustrations? Yeah, so I love pop culture. I am (laughs) heavily involved on social media, on all social media platforms. I'm currently reading Roxane Gay's book, Hunger. Roxane Gay is an author. She wrote the book, Bad Feminist, and one other book I can't remember the title of. Um, But her book, Hunger, is really uh, a memoir about her body. She's a a larger woman, and she talks about um, the kind of the journey that got her, uh, the life experiences that kind of brought her into this place with her, uh, with her body. And it's not a typical, like, oh, I lost, you know, 300 pounds and I'm a new person. She's really digging into the story behind what happened to her body as a child and the, the sexual assault and the need to hide from that pain by eating food. Mm. And so this year, I've really been into, like, reading stories stories of people, people that I know, people that I don't know. And I'm always paying attention to stories when I'm traveling. Um, you know, people that I meet, I have I have an iPhone, and so I'm always using my note app to write down the stories of people that um, I meet. And um, that's something I actually learned from one of my mentors, Greg Ellison and Olu, because both of them are amazing storytellers. Yeah. And they're always able to help uh, people connect from the head to the heart. So I'm reading Hunger by Roxane Gay, which is a memoir. I'm reading, or I read Year of Yes by Shonda Rhimes. And so both, both, both of these people are large personas in the, in the media. Um, but they help people connect the persona to the personal. That's kind of been my thing. I am listening to podcasts like My Leak Teals, My Taught You, um, podcasts, um, Serial. And I'm a huge, huge, huge music fan. And so all the buzz has been around Jay-Z's 444 album that came out a couple weeks ago um, and Kendrick Lamar's um, album, Damn. And, you know, if you've seen or heard anything about Kendrick Lamar in this particular album, he digs so deeply into lots of theological stuff. Mm. I mean, real heavy wrestling about life and death and sin and heaven and like his own personal journey and what that and how God sees him. And he, you know, he's, you know, he's a rapper and he's really digging into um, some really heavy theological stuff. And I think those of us who are in youth ministry or, or work with young people, they're listening to this music. And as we take the opportunity to listen to it with them, I mean, we'll really see like the uh, power of storytelling and narrative. And I think that's a shift in pop culture in general with the height of uh, what's happening in our world politically and out of Washington. I think there's been this shift in pop culture for people to really tell their story, tell the the real um, story behind uh, what it is that we see on TV or, you know, what's happening in, in our in our home and our personal lives. And People of faith are always looking to like make a connection to the world and their faith and and wrestling between those two worlds and so those are some of the things that I I you know do of course I read the New York Times regularly and I get alerts on my phone from the Washington Post and just trying to stay connected because you know I think that is how we are able to really help people um, make connections to their own faith and make connections to how they manage the things that they're seeing and hearing which can be a lot. 
Yeah. Um, but what does it look like to find God in a Jay-Z lyric or find God in the book by Roxane Gay or in a podcast? And, you know, it may not sound as theologically, you know, profound as we expect, but it is in those personal storytellings um, that, that are coming across social media that, you know, I'm finding that I'm finding lots of rich gems <laughs> to preach from. That's um, so great. For sure. Yeah. Well, we'll make sure to get your Twitter handle at the end so folks can follow you when you find and share about stuff. But uh, we'll move into a section of questions that we ask all of our guests. And the first one, you can answer either or both. What's one of your favorite or most challenging preaching experiences? My favorite is when I can connect pop culture to scripture. I love being able to do that. You know, when um, Lisa, when Beyonce's album Lemonade came out last year, I think it came out on a Saturday, and that Sunday morning I was preaching at Impact. So you know I rewrote my sermon, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like, you know, re, you know, to introduce this idea um, that, that Lemonade was, and, and, it, and it was so good because, you know, even though it was secular music and it's from Beyonce, it was on the lips of everybody. Everybody had been talking about the video and the music. And so that's, that's always my favorite sermon to preach when I can make a direct connection to something that's happening in the world and people are able to get that light bulb moment. Well, I know you may have not yet had the opportunity to preach on Christmas Eve or Easter, but if you were given the choice uh, to preach one or the other, or just from your uh, experience growing up, do you have a preference for uh, the service and the things that get preached on either day? Yeah, I actually preached last Easter um, at Impact. Was it last Easter? Maybe two Easter's ago, but I did preach on Easter. And I like preaching Easter. I like the Easter text. Um, and this probably comes from my splashings of Pentecostal holiness experience. <laughs> you get to preach the cross, you know? You yeah. get to preach resurrection. And that's exciting. Um, and, you know, Christmas Eve, you know, the birth of Jesus. That's, that's, you know, that's nice. But I love, you know, hearing Easter text. But but for both of them, um, I love when preachers can find something new to say Mm. about uh, the birth of Jesus or the resurrection of of Jesus, Um, because, you know, there's only a select few texts you can can come from for those. But um, Easter is my favorite because, you know, it's it's resurrection. It's exciting. It's fun. It's, you know, it's the the crux of, you know, our Christian faith, and so I love it. Yeah, sounds good. Uh, Who have been some of the most impactful preachers or non-preacher communicators in your life, and why? Yeah, so, you know, Olu, for sure, my mentor, uh, Gregory Ellison, who's a professor at Emory, Uh, Dr. Katie Cannon, who's a woman of scholar. She's, you know, uh, just brilliant. She's a brilliant storyteller, brilliant preacher. Teresa Fry Brown, and, you know, I have to go back to Roxane Gay, the author. Uh, God, the way that she tells a story. <laughs> she is just, she communicates in a way that uh, that captures you, that is honest and transparent. Um, I really like her. Um, Parker Palmer, um, I read a lot of his work, but I had an opportunity to hear him speak once, and it was just kind of like, how do you think of these things? <laughs> yeah. how, do you, how do you convey such simple ideas and uh, and ways that make us hold on to every word that you say. And then there are just, you know, people in my everyday life. Um, I have some mentees that uh, that I'm close with, and uh, Myla and Felicite, and they're young, and they're on fire for God, and, you know, they're out here traveling the world trying to find themselves, and every time they open their mouth, it's kind of like, man, you're so smart. <laughs> Um, and, you know, so there, there are people who 
from all walks of life that have just shaped the way that I understand preaching and communication. And they go all the way from the academies, the people who I grew up with um, in my neighborhood back home in Atlanta. And so I'm always happy to find gems and find people who um, understand how to make connections to from the head to the heart. Uh, I know we've mentioned quite a few throughout the episode so far, but are there any other books, uh, podcasts, or other resources that you wanted to be sure to mention before we close? I, I've been reading a couple of books around, like, um, Willpower and um, what this book by Laura Vanderkam, What the Most Successful People Do Before Breakfast. And I know that's not a book on theology, but it has been helpful for me to, like, organizing my time. I think uh, people who are in ministry... Are always, especially people in ministry who preach every week. I don't see how people who preach every week do it, but, yeah. um, you know, just thinking about, I've been reading a lot of stuff, and I, I can send these to you a little later with the titles and stuff. I've been reading a lot of stuff about time management and willpower and kind of just best practices for managing my time. And, um, you know, we always say that we should carve out time to, like, pray and to, like, study the word and all that kind of stuff. But when you're parenting and you have a full-time job and you're, you know, trying to manage other projects, that's really hard. And so I've been really digging into not necessarily theology books, but just like self-help books that are helping me think about my own habits and how to break habits and how to introduce new ones. Um, and so I can send those to you and you can uh, include them. Yeah, that would be great. And so listeners, make sure to check out the show notes for this episode. Uh, you can usually find them within your podcast app or you can head to artofthesermon.com and uh, locate the page for this particular episode and all of the links will be there. And then finally, uh, if folks want to get in touch and say hi or if they want to follow your work, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, so I have a blog at aliciagordon.com and I am on Twitter, Instagram, and Snapchat chat at star writer 59 that's b s t a r w r i t e r 59 and that's on twitter instagram and snapchat that's awesome i think you may be the first guest on the program to have shared their snapchat so that's really cool yeah well alicia thank you so much for your time and all the wisdom that you've shared with us today we really appreciate it no problem thank you Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of Art of the Sermon. You can find show notes, including links to some of the things that we talked about at artofthesermon.com. As always, I would love to hear what you think about the show, and I want your input to be a part of the conversation. So you can connect with me through Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, all at username Art of the Sermon. If you'd like to support the show, I would encourage you to subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play Music, or your favorite podcast app so that new episodes are downloaded as soon as they're live. And of course, in addition to sharing the show with your friends, the best way to help us out is to leave a review in the iTunes store. This lets iTunes know that you care about the show and want other people to find it. Thank you again so much for joining me, and I'll catch you next time on Art of the Sermon.